Hello and welcome to a special edition of Talking TV. I'm Jake Cantor. This episode we've ventured out of our Maple Street Studios home and we're in sunny Salford. Yes, the BBC has handed over the keys to its Media City base and we intend to run riot. With that in mind, we will hear from BBC North director Peter Salmon and discover how ITV's move to Salford is progressing. Also on the podcast, football's coming home as we're joined by Match of the Day editor Mark Cole who will talk to us about keeping the iconic Premier League highlight show fresh. And last but not least, we review CBBC's supernatural drama Wolfblood and we may just have a very special guest for you. That's all coming up. You join us in the nerve centre of Five Live. Broadcast editor Lisa Campbell has made the journey north. Hello. <laughs> Tell us what you've been up to, Lisa. Uh, well, so far, chairing a roundtable with indie bosses and a commissioner's Q&A. And last night there was an RTS Northwest event where Red's Nicola Schindler revealed some fascinating nuggets about her incredible back catalogue from Bob and Rose. And Quite Cole a history, Steak. wasn't it? Yeah, and um, you know, it sort of included the fact that some years ago, Granada was so desperate to fill a hole in the schedule that it commissioned a drama without looking at it or even knowing its title. And the result was one of the best dramas ever made. That's cracking. Fantastic. Also with us is Helen Tong. Am I, am, am I pronouncing that correctly, Helen? You are, yes. <laughs> You're the managing director of Manchester-based indie title role productions. You had a slightly shorter commute this morning, didn't you? I did, yes, <laughs> just from the uh, city centre, so it was only 10 minutes. Tell us about title role and, and what you're working on at the moment. We do a lot of factual output. Um, we are doing a big series at the moment for Foxtel in Australia, um, Crimes That Shook Australia, so it's very high-profile crimes. And uh, we've just finished something for Channel 5 called Fathers Who Kill. So it's... Um, yeah, some pretty busy times. Busy, busy times, but it's very good. Very Fantastic. Good. Yeah. Uh, okay, on with the show. It all began in 2006 when the BBC decided to move a major part of its operations to a desolate spot of land on the Salford Docks. More than seven years later, and at a cost of £224 million, Media City is now home to 2,800 BBC staff who keep services including Radio 5 Live, CBBC, and BBC Breakfast on air. The relocation has not been without its critics and tends to stir strong opinions. But what is clear is that it has been managed on time and on budget with no disruption to any output. Earlier this week, I caught up with Peter Salmon, the man who has overseen the move brick by brick. For a lot of people, it was a new home, literally. Um, and I remember a third of our staff were entirely new to the BBC. Half of them were from the north of England, but a third were entirely new. Might be people operating this studio, don't know. But, it, you know, just just great new people coming in. And, and you know, the NEO report found we were on time, on the budget, and no yeah. programme didn't meet its schedules. And that was, you know, that surprised us even, because we'd never, you know, we, we got nothing to base this big move on. We just did it as professionally and with as much spirit and conviction as we possibly could. Yeah, I mean, the relocation hasn't been without its detractors. I mean, you've had negative headlines on everything from uh, expensing train fares to... Uh, presenters reluctant to make the move up here. Do you think you've ridden out the worst of that publicity storm? Oh, it's, it's virtually all gone. I mean, it, we, we, it doesn't touch the sides now because, you know, there's very few people who don't feel this is their, you know, this is absolutely their base and this is their broadcasting home, this is their workplace, all the rest of it. I think it, that's virtually all gone. I mean, you know, in the end, some people travel to miles for miles to work in London or in Birmingham or Glasgow, that's just the way talent are. I don't think it's any different. It's just inevitably, 
we had to start afresh, didn't we? So you could see it all. It was a canvas. You know, London's a continuing story. Bristol's a continuing story. We laid it all bare. Uh, you mentioned the NA report. They said that the BBC bent some rules on sort of relocation packages and you've, you've spent roughly £16 million getting people up here. Was there any other way? No, I, I think we had to go through the upheaval and the disruption uh, to really, in a funny way, to um, to be able to come here and work differently and be different. I mean, it's a, this is a much better way of working. We've got better staff survey results. Um, we're much more in touch with our audiences. We're solving the BBC's Northern Audiences challenge forever. I mean, the NEO have said that it's too early to say whether Salford has passed the Valley for Money test. Yeah. Are you confident give me, it give will? Give us 20 years. Well, yeah, of course. <laughs> I, I'm totally confident. Yeah, I think already it's we're making real serious inroads. It's much too soon to tell, but we've made good progress. So it's far from job done for you? Definitely. You've got a slightly expanded role, haven't you? Uh-huh, uh, which a, you were given the, in May. What, what does tricky, that entail? That's the tricky bit. <laughs> well, because inevitably, you know, we're all paddling a bit harder. It's taking a lot of the lessons of Salford, the new stuff we've been able to do because we've been lucky because we've been able to start again. I mean, we are lucky we went through all that upheaval, but we could invent the business from the bottom up. So I'm taking a lot of the lessons of that, whether it's staff engagement, creativity, collaboration, some of the technology we're using, but in particular the audience work we're doing. How do you work in our main English hubs in Birmingham and Bristol? And how do you bring some of that Salford uh, magic dust to some of those places? There's some incredibly brilliant things happening there. Look at the Natural History Unit and all the rest of it. But actually, we've got the benefit of having been a lab for the media and a lab for the BBC, and I think yeah. we can export some of that. So he's asked me to uh, to look at some of the challenges each of those bases has got, because like us, they're, they haven't got a single point of leadership in a funny way. They, they're mixed genres, you know, radio, television, uh, future media, local... And, and they can be slightly then bedeviled by a inability to move forward as quickly and as strategically as they might. And I, so I'm working with the leadership there to see what is relevant from the Salford experience that we could mm. export. Now, I mean, that that's really a stretch, and I'm, but I'm doing it with my own team here, so it's, it's a bit of a delight, that. So that was Peter Salmon talking to me earlier. Lisa, what do you make of the move? Has it been a success or is it too early to say? I think there's a marked difference from when we were here 12 months ago, and it's a lot busier really we you know quite a buzzy atmosphere now and speaking to indies at our round table yesterday it's clear there's a real sense of optimism and an energy and a confidence that comes from major broadcasters being anchor tenants here and there's a lot of work happening and it, you know it's clear there are great locations and studios and facilities and and talent and you know i think it's proof that you don't have to be in london to either produce a fantastic show or have a brilliant career here. And and indies are getting a lot more work than they would have done previously. I mean, True North, for example, is expanding beyond factual into kids programming and that's thanks to forming new relationships with CBBC here but it's also clear I think that indies aren't just relying on the BBC for business um True North's doing work in China so so I think this is all helping them to mm. expand their businesses and, and having some sort of solidity and reliable work as well. What's your experience Alan? I echo what Lisa says there in that you um you you take the opportunity and you run with it and I think it's been a fantastic thing for the Northwest and just like True North for title role we are forging links with particularly children's and learning up here now and that's not to say we wouldn't have done that and we wouldn't have got the business but I just think those relationships and I'm seeing now for for the first time that it helps geographically it does help even in terms of 
meetings, you know, the, the people coming over to your office, vice versa. Still the bulk of, of my role and my work is heading to London and having meetings yeah. with, you know, with many other commissioners. But I think it's a, a virtue and you, you, you take hold of it. So it's, it's positive and it's growing, like yeah. you say, Lisa. And I, you, I think it's, a, it's just going to grow and grow, isn't yeah. it? And, yeah. and there's some questions around, should there be more commissioning power here? And I think it will it'll make a difference when BBC Three is here. I mean, I guess Peter Salmon has suggested that that is still the case, but we we're, 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 we're yet to see mm. what Tony Hall makes of that and whether he will move the service up. I mean, do you think that will happen eventually? Would you like to see more commissioning power up here, Helen? Absolutely. Yes, definitely. As much for, um, like I say, the geographical thing, but also to let the people see what talent there is in the North and to physically see how it works up here. When I set title roll up eight years ago, I um, I never wanted to buy into that London-centric notion i just didn't understand it i thought well great ideas are great ideas it doesn't matter where you are but there has been echoes and i'm sure many indies and many people say this that over the years that you do get that sense sometime i'll never forget a commissioner or name names but you know um <laughs> please years, name names. <laughs> years ago and uh i was in a meeting and i was with him for the first time and uh as the meeting started he said oh you've you've got a northern accent isn't, isn't that novel and and it just struck me then as like oh right okay with some in some circumstances you have a bigger hill to climb and media city setting up and more people coming up i think can only be a fantastic thing yeah, yeah. on, on that think- note it's not just the bbc that's taken up residence in media city mm-hmm. yes itv's move here is edging towards completion with the small matter of bringing over Coronation Street yet to be finalised. There are already 500 staff on site with programmes including The Jeremy Carl Show, Countdown and You've Been Framed, now being produced in Media City. Here's CITV's Dave Hickman and Granada Reports editor Lucy West talking about how the move has changed their working lives. By moving over here, we've got more access to the different departments, different teams. We're less kind of a sort of departments now. With the open plan, you know, it's easy to kind of just have people up, wander over, you know, rather than email now, either a quick phone call or even just go over and visit someone. I mean, we worked with the, the news team on our recent Share a Story competition where we had the, the winners come into CITV and they get to voice their story and have a look around. And the news were on hand to kind of uh, also offer up the chance for the kids to read the weather. So they went off and did the little green screen and they had a great day and we filmed all that and then we placed it all on a DVD. So they went off with a DVD of them you know, reading the weather. Coming here, we're much more part of the ITV family and we feel it and we see it every day. So we might be asked to help commercial and sales out with something. They might want to bring clients in, show them the weather being recorded, let them have a go. So they're actually touching television and equally, we might go to them for some expert business contacts if we're doing a business story and just working together so we get a kind of better content, better product. So just on that, Helen, you you were saying that the whole of Media City has been important to the area is ITV's move just as important as the BBC's I think it is yeah I think um, personally for title role I don't think we've felt its presence as much just because I don't think it's simply 
not been here as as long, but I do think that that will bed in, and we will, you know, see the benefits of that as time goes by. Yeah, so have definitely. you had a little chance to sneak round at all there at their, their new base? I've not yet. No, no, no. I no. was very I was very lucky enough to get a tour early this week, and it feels to me quite symbolic of the change that's going on at ITV at the moment. You know, it's a uh, really modern, fresh building, and they're talking about it in a way that is really favourable, and it's clearly helping increase collaboration across the company. I mean, what, what's your thoughts on ITV's move, Lisa? Um, I think it's really important as well. I think I think the big question about whether this place is going to be a success is if it can start to grow organically. You know, if you can get people moving between ITV and BBC, if you get a new generation of indies who leave broadcasters and, and set up on their own, and then, you know, you're leaving it to market forces then, and then you can sort of really say, yes, this is a success. It's just this thriving community that's just, you know, growing organically as, as it should. And I think ITV will help that, and it will help people f- consider this as a, as a place where you can really have a long-term career and not just a job. And finally, away from Salford, Sky has committed to surveying indies and talent agents to improve its creative processes. Uh, this story was in broadcast this week, Lisa. Do you think it's a, it's a good move? This comes off the back of the commissioning survey that, that Broadcast did for the Edinburgh TV Festival, which was very much the centrepiece of that festival. And I think it's it's really good. It's a really encouraging step that a broadcaster is taking on board some of the criticism. I mean, you know, the same with expert women. We didn't start covering the commissioning issues and, and do the survey to just sort of nip, simply name and shame. It, it's about trying to get an issue out there and people to take sort of positive steps to addressing some of the issues. So I think this is a good move. I mean, I think people will look and say, oh, it's a PR stunt and, you know, it's a great headline in broadcast. I do think Stuart Murphy is really genuinely passionate about great content and getting the best out of people and the best relationships. So, you know, so I think it's pretty genuine. I think he really wants honest feedback. And that's the biggest problem for me is whether people will actually feel confident enough to say, you know, to be critical as, as they need to be. And, and uh, you know, who knows? We'll have to see. What's your view on that, Helen? Do you think you can be as upfront as you'd like to be in those, in those situations? I think it's a positive thing if you can be. And, and I know what you're saying, Lisa, is that it's um, people can be a little bit cautious because naturally you think, you know, if you say exactly what you mean, then you never know. Um, but it can only feed into having a better system in the future so i'd say yeah you can you can be honest and without being scathing in certain Mm. respects you know it's all about the way you say things so and how important is it to you that commissioning processes across the broadcasters in the uk improve or do you think they're in a healthy place look there's always room for improvement with anything isn't there so i think the best way to go is to listen to what indies say take that on board and change accordingly as you're going along so always room for improvement i think fantastic thank you that's talking tv's salford overview my thanks to lisa and helen Onwards to what promises to be my favourite part of the show. It's an icon of television football and for Premier League fans up and down the country remains a firm weekend viewing fixture. I am of course talking about match of the day. It's been on air for nearly 50 years but competition has never been stronger with Sky's continued rights domination and the growth of content online be it legal or otherwise. Joining me to talk through these challenges is match of the day editor Mark Cole. Welcome Mark. Nice to be with you Jake. 
Has there ever been a tougher time to edit Match of the Day, given the competition that I referenced there? Yes and no, really. I mean, it, it's actually a really positive thing, the fact that everyone is talking about football. I mean, all the money that, that Sky and BT spent on the, their competition and the various marketing just got everyone talking about football again at the start of the season. Yeah. And the first programme that we actually did, it had over 7 million people watching it across the various platforms. So from, from that point of view, it, it's great. There are challenges because everyone is scrutinising every little thing you do and you, you can't get away with it on match of the day. If, you, if something happens, everyone sees it. And whether that's analysis of players or anything that, that doesn't work technically, everyone is, is aware of it. And you've refreshed things a little bit this year. Can you talk us through some of the changes? We're conscious just to keep things moving on, really. I mean, we're, we do a lot of audience reading research and, and the thing to really underline is that viewers love match of the day but there are things that, that we think we could do to freshen it up a little bit and we've been looking at some some newer pundits guys who have, who have had a lot of recent experience of playing in the Premier League and mixing those in with the guys who have proven track records and who have won league titles and won the European Cup just to get that balance really between the sort of the modern day insight and guys who as I say who know what's right to, to lift silverware so that on the punditry side we've had a look at some fresh talent but also a few things around the edges a new graphical look we've we've introduced trying to get more out of Gary Lineker as well because he is without doubt our, our best asset he mm. he can be the presenter and the pundit in a way he, he knows the answer to some of the questions that he's asking so he is a really unique position there and Gary just continues to grow and the feedback as I say we get from Gary is, is absolutely sensational really so yeah getting him more involved in the show I mean, yeah. he's very prominent with his writing anyway but getting him to do some of the post-match interviews with the managers has been a, a good feature perhaps making it a little bit more newsy around the edges as well really drilling down into some of Sunday's headlines as well and using that and also the social media aspect as well getting that interactivity with our audience and asking what they think about some of the contentious decisions that happen every Saturday afternoon. Yeah, I bet you get a voluminous response from your viewers. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> it, it, we, we get sort of constant feedback on that sense. But it's also nice to be able to put it in a percentage terms with our new social media terms tools and to have that in-match vote. It's something very new and something that no one else is doing. And we can compare what our pundits think with what the audience think. And the spike in the social media is incredible going through really? some of the, the figures yesterday. And you just sort of see these these huge spikes fat people in their thousands literally sort of voting instantaneously and it gives us a, a real good feeling of, of what the audience are thinking out there again sort of decisions are, are, are one of the most important talking points for us and that's something we'd like to push on and we're in, in sort of conversation with the Premier League about whether we can have an, a, a referee on standby to have a two-way with them and, and bring them into the dialogue as well because getting that referee viewpoint across is something that's a priority to us as well with an actual match official or with someone, probably with someone yeah. from the PGMO I think yeah. that's 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 probably the best thing to do because it, it's hard for referees to, to come out and, and talk about what's happened because it'll all be scrutinised and it'll be all the headlines on Monday but the Dermot Gallagher's, the Alan Wiley's, the Mike Riley's, they can sort of give us that perspective of, of what the official is, is thinking and, yeah. and can join in that debate with the players Alan Shearer can give the players perspective Dermot Gallagher can say what the referee's thinking I mean already those conversations go in behind the scenes and on that first programme Alan Shearer was, was in constant dialogue with Dermot but it'd be nice to try and share some of that to viewers as well. You mentioned some of the new pundits who's pleased you particularly? We've been really pleased with all the new guys we've tried, actually, and it has been a real cross-section. I mean, Danny Murphy did the first show and, and was, was excellent as well. I mean, he's in this Saturday and we're just going through the programme with the, the editor, Richard Hughes, and looking through it. And, and he actually played against Medit Ozil, so he'll be looking at that in the Arsenal game. He's, he's worked with Roy Hodgson, so from an England perspective, yeah. he knows a lot of players. He has that, that really sort of instant thing. Um, a real contrast to sort of Robbie Savage, who, who gives a very different sort of opinion on things. Robbie is, is an incredible sort of analyst in terms of his opinions and that, and we want to get more of those sometimes 
match of the day has been accused of, of, of being a little bit safe, but you certainly can't say that with Robbie. He'll tell you exactly what he's thinking. Robbie Fowler brought some real humour to the seat this, this weekend. And yeah, we've got Roberto Martinez in on, on Saturday as well with Everton not playing until Monday. Yeah. To have the only unbeaten Premier League manager in the studio is, is great as well. And I think that dynamic's really coming across and mixing that with the likes of Alan Shearer and Alan Hansen, who are our, our lead figures, I think has... has left a sort of a really different feel to the programme. Yeah, you mentioned Alan Hansen, of course, retiring at the end of the season. How big a loss is he? And uh, and are you going to find a full-time replacement, do you think? Conversations are, are ongoing as, as we speak. But I mean, the first thing to say about Alan is for two decades, he has been one of the, the lead pundits in the football industry. He kind of changed that, that face of TV an- analysis and that others like Andy Gray and Gary Neville in recent years have, have sort of taken the baton on as well. But Alan has been fantastic. I remember working with him 15 years ago and it's just a, you come in as a, as a new AP in the thing and it's just, he has this huge presence really. And we will miss Alan, but I've got enough confidence in the, in the guys coming through to help fill that void. And we'll also be continuing conversations with current footballers and, and trying to get them involved so that when they come to that decision to make a retirement, we're ready to, to bring them right into that match. Do you want a, a, a stalwart, a sort of regular figure that you can call upon every week? It can go either way, to be yeah. honest with you. I, I, uh, you can see the value in, in both, but I, I'd, I'd be very happy with, with the mixture we've had this season. Alan is, is, is a get, Shearer, again, is fantastic to work with, and, and over the last sort of couple of years, he's been the, the highest-rated pundit by the audience at Euro really? 2012 and across the channels because last year. Because he, he does get slings and arrows, doesn't Absolutely, he? Absolutely, yeah, and it's very frustrating from, us yeah. from that point of view. You that, that as I say we do a huge amount of audience research and we, we got these figures that, that over the summer like I say thousands of people who were surveyed and Alan Shearer came back the most popular football pundit across all the channels yeah. and it, it's just trying to get a bit of that message out to, to some people in the press it's, it's hard for Alan because he was as a footballer one of those guys who didn't do a huge amount of interviews and almost sort of straight batted questions so trying to change that perception of the press is not always an easy thing to do but I think now he's kind of drawn a line under his managerial aspirations. I think you've seen a different pundit, a more forthright person who said, look, this is my career and this is what I'm going to do going forward. We're sitting here in Salford. How has moving here changed the way you work on Match of the Day? It's been good for us, actually. Um, first of all, it allowed us to move into a new HD studio and, and bring in our augmented reality and all the various graphics with that and make the programme look really good and really slick. And in terms of attracting guests as well, there's a huge sort of catchment area in terms of the northwest. When you look at the likes of Kevin Kilban, Robbie Savage, Mark Lawrenson, Alan Hansen, all these guys, and also sort of trying to serve that northern audience as well as, as, as been a good thing. And it's been quite a convenient time for us to do that when Manchester United and Manchester City have been winning titles and, and topping the Premier League. So, that, so the timings work quite well. If we are doing these features and these links or Dan Walker's going off to interview the manager, it, it's across the road from our studios or, or we can bring people in like we did with Phil Neville and David Moyes last season on, into the Saturday night chairs on Match of the Day. And, it and it said, does feel like a men- uh, sort of natural time to be a manager. Just Absolutely, yeah, yeah, design. and I think we've obviously got to make sure we still cater for our audiences across the country, and that's something we're very aware of. And there's some some very prominent teams, as you're seeing now, with the, with the, the three London clubs in in Tottenham, Chelsea, and Arsenal. Yeah. So we'll make sure we serve those guys as I'm well. Glad you mentioned Tottenham. Absolutely, yeah, <laughs> yeah I've been quite encouraged. But Guy Mowbray was in yesterday, and he said there is dark horses for the for the title, but. Uh, I think that's a long way off, but they've got a, they've got a very good chance of top <laughs> if you four. Ask, if you ask Tottenham fans about that, they'll probably disagree. <laughs> I should imagine we're, we're pessimists at heart. But yeah. thank you very much for joining us, Mark. Pleasure. It was fascinating. Um, usually at this point, I tell you when the show is on air, but football fans, you know where to find it. 
Well, we're down to the final third of play here at Talking TV, which can only mean one thing. It's time for a TV review. We start this episode with the second series of CBBC's supernatural drama Wolfblood. It follows the lives of two seemingly ordinary teenagers who are secretly part of a mysterious, centuries-old race of werewolves. The 13-part series is a co-production between CBBC, ZDF and ZDF Enterprises. Wolfblood can be found on CBBC on Monday and Tuesday evenings. And here's a clip. After everything I've done for her, keeping Wolfblood's secrets, covering for her, and she talks to me like that. Maybe she's got a lot on her mind. Well, haven't we all? I wouldn't take it personally, OK? You know what? I am done playing it nice. <laughs> Lisa and Helen are with me. Uh, it's not really aimed at us, but uh, do you want to kick us off, Lisa? What, 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 what's your thoughts on this? Uh, well, it's been billed as Buffy for the CBBC generation. <laughs> and uh, I like I, it. <laughs> I think it shares many of those sensibilities, um, you know, of that cult series. It's strong, central female character, which I think is great. I think it's really important to have strong role models for, for young girls. And, you know, it deals with classic teenage nightmares from parents, school, feeling different, wanting to fit in excess facial hair or whatever um, and uh, you know it deals with these issues in a it's an exciting plot it's it's tense drama it's great visuals I think really well produced a robust sense of humour too so I mm. really like this there were some real moments of levity in it mm. weren't there what, you can really see the money on screen can't you Helen yes absolutely I thought it was a, it's a great production like Lisa says in terms of uh, on screen the script the narrative uh, the central characters as well, you really pulled into it. I know it's a CBBC programme, but I, felt, I thought, God, I, I bet uh, adults are as, as hooked as the yeah. uh, as the CBBC audience. Yeah, and they're really likeable characters, aren't they? Really likeable. And you, you feel, you get that sense you want to come back and you want to, you want to know more about the characters. It's been shown on BBC Three as well and was marked out by the BBC Trust this week as a good example of where various BBC services can collaborate to promote children's content. Do you, uh, do you think that's a good thing? Yeah, I think that's a good thing. I, th- I think, you know, it's interesting, this series is also playing out alongside a spin-off, Exploring Worlds, it's called um, Wolf Blood Uncovered, and that's produced by the NHU. So I think that's a really good example of, you know, we get the drama and then actually we get the, you know, the facts behind wolves um, from, from the Natural History Unit. The collaboration thing is quite interesting, so I think you get, you get a real sense of how important partnerships are in Salford. I think much more than in London, it feels quite insular. And I know that they've made a real effort here to to sort of partner with not just other departments, but out into the community as well, you know, with, with sort of arts organisations, whatever, and, you know, things like Frankenstein's Wedding and, and the Preston Passion and all these things sort of getting out with big BBC events into the community. I think Children's is another example where they do road shows and they do, they do lots of stuff for kids and just really trying to boost that relationship license fee payers out of London where it's not quite so strong. So I think it's, you know, brilliant examples of that. Uh, do, you, do you think um, this is a good example of British content that's um, doing well internationally? I mean, it's been sold to Disney. And do you think it's a, it's a standard bearer for British content? Absolutely. And, and there's a lot of British content that's doing fabulously well internationally. And this is this is one of the examples. And that just shows in the strength of the production, the, you know, the, the script, the, the writing, 
everything that's on screen, it's it all translates internationally. It's not just for a British audience. I mm. think they've got that just right. And one thing I love about Wolf Blood is the creator and main writer is called Debbie Moon, which is <laughs> which is rather fitting. Great name. <laughs> um, thank you very much for that, guys. Uh, usually at this point, we would review another show. But we're throwing out the rule book because we're in Salford. So sticking with the children's television theme, I'm delighted to say we're joined by Mel Ming, the chief executive of Sesame Workshop, which, of course, is the organisation behind iconic US children's show Sesame Street. Mel, how are you enjoying Salford? I am thrilled to, to be here. The weather is cooperating. <laughs> it's this, sunny. This campus is uh, beautiful to see uh, a place where I saw... 20,000 people were out front uh, some time ago celebrating something here. It's just a wonderful place where I think the creatives of the BBC can come together and do the kind of work that you do. So I'm honoured to be here. Brilliant. And you stepped up as chief executive in 2011, am I right in saying that? Yes, after being with the workshop for 13 years before that as chief financial officer, chief operating officer, all of which gave me an opportunity to see how Sesame Street works, but really come to appreciate the, the genius of creatives and business people and artists coming together to create images that will inspire young children. And it's just wonderful. Tell us about the work that Sesame Workshop does beyond the TV show. The TV show is the iconic uh, pronouncer of what Sesame Street is. It's world famous because of those street scenes where humans and Muppets interact and they model behaviors and tell stories. But what has happened is that those Muppets can be useful in explaining complicated issues to children and families. So beyond the TV show, we've developed work most recently to help parents talk to children about if a parent is away, mm. so incarceration. And it's under the umbrella, little children, big challenges. What got us to that was our work with the U.S. military where parents, both mothers and fathers, were being deployed and families didn't have the, the language or the skills just to talk to their children about mom or dad going away. So it just helped us uh, use the Muppets to model Elmo yeah. has a father and the father and Elmo talk about how they're going to count time, which for a two- or three-year-old child is a difficult concept, and uh, how they would... Uh, stay connected by just using simple devices of marking on, on the calendar, counting days, remembering birthdays, those kinds of things. So what are some of the challenges? Illness, healthy eating styles. Yeah. We're looking at deferred behavior. So Cookie, the Cookie Monster. The Cookie Monster, my yes. favorite. Your favorite? Sesame Street character. <laughs> can you imagine that Cookie now is becoming the model of how you just don't always grab the cookie and eat it, but sometimes... It's good to wait. So eat your colors, your vegetables first. And after you've done that, then eat the cookie that sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> so the iconic nature of the, the characters, Cookie, Elmo, Big Bird, and some of the other classics, we found that they can be useful in teaching lessons, life lessons to young children and give adults ways of engaging with children, but just following the model of the Muppets. So social value does. as well. Yes, yeah. and, and what do you know of children's television in the UK? The UK, uh, the BBC in particular, has been probably the world's leader in experimenting with how you could use different formats to engage because we know if children don't engage, they don't learn. If it's not fun, if it's boring, 
What is the first thing to tell us? It's boring. As we know more about how the brain develops and how children learn, characters and animation and uh, uh, formats yet to be developed because of digital technologies will be useful in having a child be prepared for school and more importantly, for life. How to be a good neighbor. How to see difference as difference, not better or worse. On the digital technology front, um, the Sesame Workshop um, Xbox Connect won two Broadcast Digital Awards yes. and I chaired that jury and they were absolutely blown away by the work but just also said it felt streets ahead mm-hmm. of what everyone else is doing. And So how have you got to that point? Because it's a huge challenge, isn't it? The sort of competition for screen time for children and they're playing with tablets at such a young age. How are you dealing with that? It is a very huge challenge. Uh, we have a few of our professionals who are committed to trying to anticipate as new technologies come on the scene, is there a child-appropriate use for that technology? And I I remember seeing some of the early prototypes, and I said, will this work, will this work? Where you put the child in the picture and have uh, Grover throw a coconut to a child, and the child can actually motion as in catching it, and then mimic the action of, of throwing, and while they're, they're perfecting the throw, learn to count. So what is key is, what's on the horizon? What might be the technologies that are being introduced? Uh, voice recognition, augmented reality, those kinds of things. Is there a place for that technology in the life of a child? And what we at Sesame aim to do is try to figure out how to make those technologies child-friendly, family-friendly, and make them learning and fun. And you're not allowed to tell us why you're here. It's top secret, isn't it? <laughs> oh, I'm here. The, the, this is the mecca. This is the, the, this is the fertile place where uh, creativity is unleashed and to see what has happened. Just walk into campus yeah. and see the commitment of the resources to quality children's programming is uh, great. So can you imagine a day when Sesame Street and the, and the CBBs come together to create something that will just change the face of children's programming? I'm looking forward to that day. Thank you for joining us, Mel. Uh, it's, it's been great to talk to you. Uh, thank you, too, to uh, Lisa and Helen, who were with us earlier. Uh, and that's your lot for this instalment of Talking TV. I hope you've enjoyed being with us in Salford. It will be business as usual in a fortnight's time, and I hope you'll be coming back for more. My name is Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. So we're off for now. 